Welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear. And the only way to escape it was to GTFO. Through this podcast, I want to give you, the listeners, the power and courage to make life changes should you need to GTFO. I want to open today's podcast with some questions. How far would you go to do something you believe in? I mean, have you ever felt so strongly or passionately about something that you would risk your life for it? I haven't. I mean, I've taken risks professionally and personally, but not one that would potentially put my life at risk, maybe changing lanes too quickly on the freeway, but that's about it. Well, my guest today, Howard Kaplan, has taken this type of risk. He is an example of letting his belief and passion lead and guide him. His GTFO story is also one of danger and bravery, which he'll share with us in this episode. But first, I want to talk more about Howard. He's quite dynamic. Howard Kaplan is a native of Los Angeles and has lived in Israel and traveled extensively through Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. He is a best-selling author of several books, including Bullets of Palestine, The Chopin Express, and most notably, The Damascus Cover, which was made into a movie in 2017 starring the late John Hurt and Jonathan Rhys Myers. Writing and movies aside, here is where Howard's belief and passion come into play. In 1971, Howard was a college student living in Israel, attending the Hebrew University Junior Abroad Program. He was 21 years old. While studying abroad in Israel that year, he was faced with taking a life-changing risk. He was asked to travel from Israel to the Soviet Union to carry and deliver what was considered by the Soviets contraband materials to dissidents. If you don't know what dissidents are, they were those who did not agree with Soviet ideology and were willing to speak out against them. At the time, political opposition in the USSR was barely visible, and opposing it was highly dangerous. Despite knowing this, Howard went on this mission fearlessly. Yet some days into this mission, the secret police force, better known as the KGB, was on to him, ambushed him, arrested him, and interrogated him for four days straight. Howard, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you because we met fairly recently. We kind of have an interesting story. Yeah, I have this peculiar habit (laughs) that I friend everybody whose last name is Kaplan (laughs) on Facebook. There's no reason for it. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not looking to see if we're related because my parents are East European and we almost can't possibly be. It's just, oh, I see it. And I said, okay, I'll click on that. And that's what I do. And that's what happened. And that's how we got connected because I saw it. Howard Kaplan sent you a friend request. And I'm like, hey, he's Kaplan with a K. I'm Kaplan with a C. I think we can make this work. <laughs> so far we have. <laughs> so so far we have. And we're, we've connected over this now. So I'm really excited to have you here. Um, but I'd like to start our conversation today with you giving us some background on yourself because you have an interesting history. I was born 
1950. So I grew up in 1950s Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which was a wide open space. It wasn't built up. Uh, there were empty lots on our block. There were dairies and walk. There was a dairy in walking distance. There was miniature golf, and you had a sense almost that you could be whoever you wanted to be. Now, I maybe wanted that more than somebody else might because both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother had been in Auschwitz and my father had a a more unusual background that makes him kind of a hybrid. He came out in 1938 alone before the war, but he found out when the war ended that everybody he left behind, all his brothers and sisters, his parents, the children of his brothers and sisters, everybody but one aunt and uncle had been murdered by the Nazis. So I grew up in a family that was a little bit dark. (laughs) And I kind of hung out on the block a lot with other kids to look for a different way to be. Wow. And that's kind of how I grew up. Well, that's really interesting because yeah, both both are devastating situations. So I can only imagine being raised with that kind of darkness around me. So I can see why you would want to reach out to other kids to find something a little bit different. But they also instilled certain values in you. Uh, my father was a particularly hard worker. He's one of these immigrant cliche stories. Right. He thought America would be the land of gold, he would just pick it up. Right. He was a house painter in Poland as a as an 18-year-old and found himself very glad that he had a profession. And he became a painting contractor and bought apartment buildings. He became very wealthy, joined the mm-hmm. Brentwood Country Club. Mm-hmm. And he always wanted me to be a lawyer. He still wants me to be a lawyer. Shocking, right? Shocking. <laughs> you know, he's so I grew up with a whole lot of cliche and I spent a lot of effort trying to escape that milieu of doing things the way everybody else did. As immigrants, my parents were very interested in fitting in. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to deviate from anything, and I wanted to deviate from everything. And going to Russia was certainly on that list that actually my f- parents were not happy about when they found I'm sure out they were I'm sure they were quite, you know, surprised that you were gonna do something like that. Yes, so. especially when they found when I came home because they didn't know I'd gone. Well, that actually brings me to a good a good next question is tell us about where your story begins in nineteen seventy one. In thinking about this for the podcast, one of the things I thought I would say is that I often in my life and still even today didn't have a lot of plans or goals, but I walked through the world greatly open and was available for experiences, doing things, going places, changing directions. Mm-hmm. So on my junior year abroad, there was a woman from my high school in Los Angeles, Hamilton High. We were friends, and she got involved with a guy who was recruiting people to go to Moscow on their way home. It was very efficient. You spend your junior year abroad, 
And on your way home, you just kind of detour into Moscow to bring these, as you called them, contraband materials. Mostly they were Hebrew instruction yes. books. Yes. Because it was forbidden in the Soviet Union to study Hebrew. There were no classes for Hebrew and private teachers were pressured if they were teaching classes. They were teaching classes in underground, taking great risks, greater than mine. And I felt, after I ran into this friend of mine, given how little the world worked to free the people who were entrapped in the concentration camps like my mother, mm-hmm. the least I could do was go to Moscow. So there I was at 21 and I went. Right. But I love that part of your story because you were fearless and you had a purpose. You know, I mean, considering your parents' history was something that was innate for you. I really felt that I couldn't sit silent. Right. With my life, you know, and just have a career and earn money and try to do all those standard things. I really felt that if I was angry that nobody helped my mother when she was in Auschwitz, then I better do something about it when I had the opportunity. And as I said, I never had a plan to go to Russia. This friend of mine met a guy and she said, come to this study group. We're going to meet once a week and do a little training. And I said, okay. And I did. Wow. Wow. I still can't believe it. It's amazing to me. Well, will you tell us about why you were delivered asked to deliver these textbooks and manuscripts. I know that they were trying to keep this stuff under wraps in the Soviet Union, but why were you asked to do it? Well, the Soviet Union at that time in the early 70s was just starting to let a few Jews leave the country. It's a very closed country, the -hmm. Soviet Union. For example, when I would go on a two-week tour, I had a 14-day visa. You couldn't just go to Russia, you know, (laughs) land in the airport. And you had to have a specific tour you were on with what was called an in-tourist guide. So I felt like I, these dissidents who you mentioned Mm -hmm. were very close. Remember, we're we're in a world without cable TV, without cell phones, without faxes. There were faxes, but they were not available to them. Right. And they didn't meet Westerners much. And they wanted the encouragement of knowing what was going on in the outside world. So I was happy to go in and try and meet with them. And I did. I met with quite a lot of people. I had addresses of where to go. And I learned how to walk to their houses, their apartments, so that I didn't have to ask directions because I do not speak Russian. And if I asked directions or in English or whatever, those people will likely report me to the secret police. Right. And nobody wants that. You don't have time for that. No, (laughs) I wasn't on my list of things. No, that was not on your agenda. Um, That's actually another good segue. You were giving us some color to what the world was like in Russia at that time and how the KGB functioned. Could you go a little bit more into that for our listeners? There were listening devices everywhere in the Soviet Union, in your hotel rooms and in people's apartments. So one time, for example, I delivered, the dissidents asked me to deliver a manuscript they wanted out in the West to the Dutch ambassador. Why did they want me to do that? Because Soviet citizens 
Russians, Jews were not allowed, no Russians were allowed into foreign embassies because they were foreign soil. Each embassy had a KGB secret police guard outside. It was like a telephone booth. You know, so they scary. would be standing in that kind of guard. But I had an American passport. So I had a story that I was a friend of the ambassador's, my family was a friend of the ambassador's secretary. So I got into the Dutch embassy. I had this manuscript. I gave it to him. He put it in a drawer. He could take it out in a diplomatic pouch. Mm -hmm. And for the next amount of time, so many years later, I don't remember how long it was, we wrote notes to each other while chatted about this fictitious relationship my family had with his secretary. It was all just oh, made Oh, wow. Really? And I only remember the last thing he wrote to me, because you know, it was a long time ago, as I've said. He wrote, be careful, this is not James Bond. And then he took all the little pieces of paper and burned them in the ashtray because there were listening devices inside his embassy also. You have to live in secrecy, even in your own quarters. Right. So what ended up happening to me, I was in a city called Kharkov in the Ukraine. And I met with some dissidents there in their apartment. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was 1130 at night. I don't remember exactly the time. And one of the guys after we met said he wants to accompany me by the trolley all the way back to just short of my hotel and he would get off one stop before the hotel. I didn't think it was necessary. I, you know, I was kind of a cocky guy. I said, I can get around. <laughs> but he said, come. And as we, very close to the apartment, as we turned the corner, a wall of men leapt at us. Some were uniformed, I believe. Some were plain clothes. They start shouting in Russian. They grabbed us both arms behind the back by the wrists and shoved us up against the building. I was not hurt. And he said something, he spoke English. He said to me, don't worry, it'll be fine. And they punched him in the stomach for that. Oh gosh. And then we were taken to KGB headquarters. It was by foot. They must've planned where they took us by coincidence, or it was an office building into a basement and then they waited, they needed a translator, because we're in the Ukraine now, mm -hmm. to interrogate me in English. Two KGB officers came in. They looked like a colonel and a captain. And finally, they brought the manager of my hotel, who spoke English, into the room. And they asked me a few questions, mostly, how did you, how did you meet this man? How did they... Um, how did you get their address? How did you know to meet them? And I said, they're Soviet citizens. Am I not allowed to speak to them? And they said, yes, you can talk to Soviet citizens, but you're consorting with known hooligans. And that's a crime in the Soviet Union. And you can be put away for 15 years in prison. And I said, I want to speak to the American ambassador. And they said, no. And they said, Ignorance of a law. They were very smart. They said, if I were in the United States, the KGB guy said, and I broke a law, even if I didn't know that I was breaking that law, I would be liable to the punishment. 
So there's nothing the American ambassador can do for you. And you're not going to speak to him. It's so almost I like said, he was trying to rationalize it for you. It's always, you I know? think that was great part of the Soviet system. That's why they had trials. They had show trials. Right. Instead of just saying, we're thugs and we can do whatever we want. They were saying, we are operating within the law. They just sort of made up the law. Or they had the law in the books. Maybe consorting with hooligans is a crime in the Soviet Union. That's how they get innocent people or you know, innocent Russians. So finally, it's about one o'clock in the morning. And I said, I want to use the bathroom. And they decided instead, since it was late, to take me back to my hotel. And the next two days, I was interrogated in the hotel manager's office. So one of the things I like- Howard, was was the hotel manager in on it with them or was he a bystander? Yes, no, he was, you know, he wasn't KGB. He was just- a normal employee. Okay. But he was a manager of a Russian hotel, so he was going to cooperate with the authorities. And I always like to say that I got better room service in my room in the hotel for meals than I got in the dining room before I was arrested. They were very clever. They then took me to Moscow. Two more guys picked me up at the airport. These guys, though, were the, sort of the big guys. Mm-hmm. One spoke perfect American English and the other spoke perfect British English. You would not have known they were not natives. You would have thought this guy grew up in, you know, in Los Angeles. Wow. And so I didn't need, there were no translators anymore. These guys were the sophisticated KGB officers to deal with foreigners. And this time they put me in a hotel right outside the main airport, Moscow airport. This was a small hotel. It had no restaurant. It's probably for travelers, you know, layovers. Sure. And each meal this time, I guess I'm talking about how I ate under KGB interrogation. KGB cafe. (laughs) They walked me across the street through passport control, through security, into the departure lounge. I got to order whatever they wanted. They paid for it. And then they walked me back. Across. Why would they do that? Why would they uh, my give sense that was luxury? One of two things. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was the closest restaurant. <laughs> there was no place to eat. True. Or true. maybe more specifically, there was psychological intimidation saying, see, if you cooperate the next time we're going to leave you in the departure lounge and we'll allow you to leave. I think it was more the latter. That's what I've always thought. They were kind of saying, be a good boy and you can go. Right. So I wanted to go. So I tried to be a good boy. So you ate the food. You're like, this is fine. Whatever they gave me, I ate. I didn't complain. Right. Um. Um. What did they say they wanted from you most? Okay, what they were what they were most interested in, and this is sort of the theme of your podcasts are, you know, how did you get out? Yeah. Because I was quite worried that I was on a 14-day tour. They arrested me on the 10th day. So I f- felt they had four days to play with me. 
and that I felt fairly confident I could hold out pretty easily for four days. Because again, there were no white lights, no torture, no music playing all night. There was, you know, bathroom breaks when I wanted them. I think the purpose of all that was they knew they were going to release me. And when I came out to London, I didn't have much to complain about to hold a press conference to make them look bad. You know, they would have asked me in the press conference, you know, were you tortured? Were you, could you use the bathroom? Were you fed? And I would have had to say, you know, what I said before that I was fed better than on the tour. Right. That's an interesting tactic that they used. You couldn't go back home and badmouth them. Right. I, I had very little, and I didn't, actually. I, I didn't say anything. Uh, but there were some other reasons for that, too. They were most interested in, I, you know, I was 21. I was a college student from Berkeley. I didn't tell them I'd been at the Hebrew University. Probably a good I'm, idea. I, yeah, I told them I was Probably a leftist. Good to not say that, right? You know, interested in communism and wanted to see the Soviet system, and it's not completely wrong. I did want to see it, right? So they were interested, and this is the part where I did have some training. They were interested in who sent me. That was the major thing that they drummed about. How did you get these books? Who gave you the books? Who gave you the addresses? What's the guy's name? How do you contact him when you get back to London? So this was all pre-planned from my side. So I said, I booked a tour in a London travel agency, which was true. And this man approached me as I left the embassy, excuse me, not the embassy, the travel agency, and said, now that you're going to Russia, can I buy you a cup of coffee and maybe have some things that'll be interesting for you? That was completely made up. And I said, I had no way of contacting him. I tried to be, act like a stupid American kid. Maybe I overplayed it, but I had those propensities, (laughs) you know, they were, they were willing to believe I was a stupid kid. So I didn't want to discourage them in any way. And I said, he met me in a cafe and here was sort of the linchpin of the whole thing. I said, I have no way to reach him, no phone number. No, I don't know where his address, but he's meeting my flight at Heathrow Airport. Okay. So you did give them that. And I want to back up. I have a couple more questions for you. Yes. When okay, they were go, asking please. you about the source and who got in touch with you to go on this mission, did you know in your mind that you were going to have to talk your way out of that and not divulge? the source. Yes, this was the plan prearranged in London before I left that if I was arrested, mm-hmm. what we were trying to do was encourage them to expel me on my scheduled flight and then follow me in London, we didn't care if they followed me or not, in order to find my source. That the impetus would be that they would expel me Right. On the one flight where this man would be waiting for me at the airport. Got it. So that's the only way they would even have a hint as to who it was, which is why Correct. they wanted to, I kept saying I didn't know, to get you out. Okay. I described they asked me to describe somebody, so I described my father. Because I knew if I was asked multiple times over a period of time, I might forget, but I wouldn't 
maybe I wanted to forget sometimes what my father looked like, but there was no likelihood that I would. Right, right, right. It, that's a natural, you know, way to think of things in that type of situation, I think. Well, they, you know, they wanted you to, I did have one problem where I gave this guy a name and I crossed the names of two of my friends who were on the junior abroad with me in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. One was Larry Simon and the other was Steve Schiffer. And then one day in Moscow, I was exhausted and I couldn't remember which way I crossed them. I couldn't remember if I called him Larry Schiffer or Steve Simon. And I was really worried because I thought if I said the wrong name, they'd know I was yanking their chain the whole time. And I got really lucky because the interrogation began that morning. And the first thing out of the guy's mouth was, we want to know more about this guy, Simon. So I was rescued by the KGB from stepping into a very large puddle. Yes, you were. You were very lucky. I was very lucky. Strangely. But that would cause some stress. You're like, I can't remember how I crossed these names over to save myself. As I recall, I was pretty worried about that. Yeah, that would cause a little stress. I would agree with that. So tell us about your release. Tell us about going to London and what parting ways was like. There were two parts to this. One, so finally a prosecutor came and yelled at me in the hotel room and they expelled me onto my flight. And in... The departure lounge, I can never pronounce the name of the airport. It's very, it's a hard word to pronounce. So in Moscow airport, the two KGB officers were with me Mm -hmm. and they were about to put me on the plane on my scheduled flight. And the American one, the one who spoke so good, perfect English, he said, everybody's treated you well here haven't they? And I said, yes, they've been totally cordial for people who were holding me in jail. <laughs> they were I mean, nice people to hold you in jail. They were, yeah, they held me they in jail had, very they nicely. They had manners. They had manners. Yes, they, they, you know, he said, I don't want to ever see, I remember exactly the words he used. He says, I don't ever want to see anything about this appearing in print or next time we can find you anywhere in the world and we won't be so humanistic. I remember him using the word humanistic. And I was really, you know, just an off the wall kid. And I thought, how dare he, you know, threaten me. And I thought, wow, this is a really good idea. I could start writing. I guess, <laughs> Thanks. I guess, Thanks for giving me a plan. I could start writing about this, you know, which <laughs> right. I, I didn't have a particular, I was 21, plan about. So to go back to your question, so I get on the plane. I don't know if anybody followed me on the plane because I didn't look. I was just happy to be on the plane. I get to Heathrow and I call my friend from a pay phone and I tell him I have a bad cold, which was a signal that I was in trouble. And then I walk around the airport for a requisite period of time to try and look for this supposed person who's really a made-up person who's not meeting me. So I act like I don't find him, 
which of course I can't find him. He doesn't exist. (laughs) He's fictitious. Walk out of the airport with my bag and I start walking up the street and the bag's heavy and I'm tired. I don't know if we had suitcases on wheels in those days yet. And I hail a cab and the cab pulls over and I get in the cab and the driver turns back from the front seat and says, you okay, Howard? And I say, yeah, I'm fine. It was a friend of mine. I didn't know it at the time, but there were two KGB officers walking on the sidewalk behind me, following me. Whether they were on my flight or in London already and commandeered to come and meet my flight, I don't know. I never saw them. Now you had no idea that they were on your heels. I know. I never no saw them. To this day, I've never, I never saw them. I didn't know mm-hmm. they were there. I wasn't looking. I was trying to act inconspicuous, not like looking behind me to see if I was being followed. And they told me later that evening that because I so abruptly hailed a cab, these two KGB officers were stuck and they abruptly hailed a cab. That cab was also driven by another friend of mine. And at the next red light, two cars pulled up on each side of that cab. Guys jumped out, sandwiched the Russians between them and left them in Epping Forest without the benefit of their clothing. And that was the last (laughs) part I had to do with this. And when I told my seven-year-old son the story, it was terrible. He suddenly worried that they died. And I said, no, I'm sure they got out because it would have been in the papers if anything happened to them. If if someone had been killed. You're right. right. Okay. So that GTFO moment of being in two cabs and sandwiched and your two KGB buddies, if you will, you know, in a forest without clothing is pretty um, unusual. I mean, that's pretty significant. Do we know why they did that to them in the end? Uh, I think, no, I really never asked my friends okay. what they were up to. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I'm, I was sort of a little shell-shocked and happy to be out. And ready to continue. Although I have a little story that this one friend of mine who's going to remain unnamed. When I was ready to go home, let's say it was a week later. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. He took me to Heathrow and he wanted to give me something. And he took the belt off his pants. He didn't have a present. And he handed me his belt. And I wore that belt until it shredded. I always felt he was with me. I would be so paranoid after what happened to you. I I feel like I'd be constantly looking over my shoulder, you know, worrying if somebody was still following me. Yeah. I don't remember. I probably was in someone's home a good part of the time. I don't remember what I did or where I went. Right. Right. How did you, coming back from that, how did you recover from the whole experience You know, it's useful sometimes to be young. I was 21. I had to go back to college at Berkeley. Uh, I wasn't, and remember, I wasn't beaten. I wasn't, you know, tortured. And I think I was able to hold my own during those four days because 
we had this whole plan to get me out on the 14th day. So it was less traumatic than it might have been later in my life. I think people, I have a son who's now 27. People are often far more concerned about their own safety and well-being once they have children. True. You know, and at that time, I was on my own. So as I recall, you know, I became a spy novelist, so it had a big impact on my life. Huge. In that sense, I'm certain I never would have written spy novels had this not happened. And my career was sort of built in that direction. Uh, But on an emotional level, maybe because I came from a pretty chaotic family, you know, who'd suffered all this pain in their life, I had a lot of equanimity. I was, you know, to survive, I developed as a young kid a sense of equanimity that I could handle things. And at that time, it was fairly not difficult for me to do that. Right. You were built for it in a way, Howard. Well, you know, like the construct is sort of right. It's like, you know, even with the KGB, you know, uh, maybe I could uh, tell it to you this way. When I was eight years old, and I only know this because I've checked the dates with the internet, my mother takes me to a double feature. You know, she's trying to be a normal mother. The films were The Fly and Terror from the Year 5000. And sometimes memory is funny, you know, and you're not sure if it actually happened. Yeah. And she fell asleep as I sat there for three hours at eight years old and watched this horror movie. So how do I know I was eight? I looked up on the internet and both films were released in 1958. So my memory was correct. And it had such an impact on me. This In Terror from the Year 5000, this woman killed with these bright red bloody nails. Oh, my gosh. And and I had no recollection of that. But in my 20s, or when I started dating, I wouldn't date women with red nail polish. Oh, wow. For it was really like a, a long time until I a- figured it out. It just suddenly, I said, I kept asking myself, why do I care about nail polish? I thought I was a Berkeley hippie and I was being, <laughs> you know, very cool. But then, you know, the 80s happened and women were threw away their Birkenstocks and were wearing heels and nail polish. So I said, I better get with the program. <laughs> And it just suddenly occurred to me one day that it was because of that movie that I saw when I was eight. So then, of course, the way I do everything, I looked for women with red nail polish and heels. You challenged yourself. You were trying to overcome the aversion to red nail polish. I've done a really good job of it. Yes, clearly it worked out. But that's really interesting. That memory stuck with you for so long. Yeah, it really did. You know, and I didn't trust it. Until I had to look, and when I looked up on the internet, and it confirmed that both those movies were released together. Yep, those were in days was. when you had double features, so they I know, were co- when you, double features. When you said that, that I haven't heard double feature in so long. I mean, I forgot it existed, but that's what they did. Right, they had double you, almost all movies were double features. Yeah, with an, I inter- with an intermission in between to sell popcorn. Can you imagine that now? Can you imagine? Well, right now we don't even know if there are movie theaters anymore. Right, so, exactly. You know, That's a, why we're living with Netflix. You know, right. Yeah, right. Can't can't live without the Netflix right now. Um, what would you want our listeners to take away from the story today? I think the most maybe you know to frame the interview. It's sort of back where I started. The real great success in my life, or the interesting things that have happened 
have been based around the fact that I was open to doing things differently. Now, part of it is rebellion because my parents as immigrants only wanted to do things the right way. But, you know, I went, did my junior abroad on a dare in Jerusalem. I wasn't planning to do that. I went to Russia. I wasn't planning to do that. We didn't get into it. But while I was in the Hebrew University, I went with a friend to Beirut, Damascus, and Cairo, which is how the Damascus cover, the novel came through because I'd had that experience in Syria, also at 21. So, you know, I I don't want to be cavalier enough to tell people not to have plans and goals. I don't think that's my role in life. But I do like to tell people that if you walk through the world wide open to doing things differently than maybe you thought you wanted to or your parents wanted the way they wanted to, there can be some really extraordinary experiences and rewards. I agree with you. And I think that is a fantastic message because you never know what you're going to find on the other side. No, all these things were not planned. Right. And it formed your career. Really. I mean, it, it gave you a runway. It really did. It just cha- it changed my direction. Yeah. Your your GTFO changed <laughs> your direction. Really. I it love that. It certainly did. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a great message for our listeners because I want them to have the same bravery, Howard, that you did. You know, you went with what was in your gut, what you were passionate about, and you let it guide you. And here you are today. So Still writing. Still writing, still doing your thing. Okay, that's great. Tell us how people can get in touch with you for speaking engagements, just staying connected to you on social media. You know, Um, Facebook is really the easiest way to find me. Okay. Because I'm on there often. I have a website. It's howardcaplanauthor.com. But really, I'm much more active on Facebook. Uh, All my books are on Amazon, that's the easiest way uh, to find them. There are Kindles, there are paperbacks, there's audiobooks now. We're in a new world. Uh, the film, the Damascus cover is on Hulu. If people have Hulu, it's um, you can rent it through any of the streaming services, but subscribers of Hulu can find it uh, for free. And, you know, I'm little bit well-suited for a pandemic because I can just stay home and write. <laughs> you can stay home and write. It's <laughs> easy. Know, I was doing that anyway, so. Well, I appreciate you telling us how we can keep in touch with you. And I just saw the Damascus cover and it was a great thriller. And I'm so proud of you for all of your work. I really am. And I'm proud of you for sharing this experience with us today, Howard. It means a lot. Thanks you so much for having me. Wonderful. And guys, that is a wrap with GTFO for today. And I cannot wait to reconnect with you guys soon. Have a great day. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at GTFO underscore podcast. Thanks. Thanks.